I'm Elaine Casket, and this is your Life on Tech. This week, I present the second installment of podcast episodes connected to my new book, which is called Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. It's out in the UK on the 31st of August, 2023. And this book trains a psychological lens on the whole of contemporary human life, and it aims to put you back in the driver's seat in your relationship with the digital technologies that dominate our world. Every week for this and the next eight weeks, I'll explore the themes in one chapter of Reboot by revisiting conversations with people I interviewed for the book, as well as talking to some folks that I didn't get a chance to speak with the first time around. This week focuses on infancy. Now, infancy is the start of most traditional models of the psychological and social lifespan, but it's the second chapter in Reboot. That's because identity today begins with digital gestation. Flick back to the previous week's episode to find out more about that. This week, I'll be talking to Stephanie, a mom of two young kids who's still navigating decisions about baby tech. Professor Victoria Nash, the director of the Oxford Internet Institute, and familiar voice from the first reboot episode, Dr. Tama Lever, who's the professor of internet studies at Curtin University in Australia, here to clue us in about the weird world of infant wearables. Without further ado, here's the companion podcast for Reboot Chapter 2, Infancy. First up is Stephanie. Until recently, she lived here in the UK with her wife and two kids, but she's recently moved to the US. Her kids are now three years and 15 months old. At first, it was more like, let's get a monitor. And oh, wow, these monitors have video on it. Like, this is really impressive. And I remember my wife saying, do we really need video? Like, could we just get an audio monitor? And I was like, I don't think those exist anymore. Those are sort of like a thing of the past. Now everyone needs to actually see and hear their child. And we got one of those and having the monitor didn't make me feel better. I was just looking at it, worried, should we go in there? Um, What is she doing? Is this okay? Um, it was the monitor and we also had a, a thermometer, which was a separate little thing. And it would glow red if it was too hot or get, um, blue if it was too cold. And I remember for whatever reason, maybe it's just being in the throes of like sleep deprivation and like that all of those hormones after you have a a baby are just sort of taking hold of you and, I was obsessed with the temperature in our daughter's room. I was like, it's supposed to be between 16 and 20 degrees. It's 15 degrees. It's 22 degrees. And like, you couldn't, you couldn't actually do anything to change it. But I just, for some reason, like seeing those numbers and knowing they were outside of the numbers they were supposed to be just like, filled me with this anxiety I've never experienced in my life. And I don't know if it was a result of like, I said, all the hormones and nervousness of like having a a very, very young child or just all of the things you read where it tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. And when you're doing something outside of that, you're, 
you're just afraid your child is in mortal danger when that's obviously now looking back, it's like, oh my God, so ridiculous, but it's terrifying in the moment. And so then I think this tech comes in and, you know, you're supposed to feel comforted by it, but that was not my experience. (laughs) It just, it seemed to cause more anxiety, I think, than anything else. It's certainly the promise of the advertising that these devices are going to offer the parent peace of mind. And you're describing a situation that the research indicates is actually pretty common, that the things that are supposed to allegedly diminish the anxiety end up stoking it for various reasons. We have all of this data about like what we're supposed to do with our children. And I think it's scary. Like you look online, like you're afraid of SIDS. You need a monitor to make sure your baby isn't rolling onto their stomach. Um, Cause I had a friend whose baby would roll onto their stomach at a very young age and she was terrified and, and rightly so, because we're taught like put the baby on the back, make sure your baby's on the back. And when they're not, you know, as a parent, you this is the wrong thing. And what should we do? Should we wake the baby up, flip the baby over? Like, I I think we're just sort of inundated with all of this stuff. And then, you know, it's, I guess it's just like motherhood and late stage capitalism. Like, let's find a device we can get people who are vulnerable and scared to pay for that is supposed to make them feel better. One of the things that you said a minute ago that kind of interested me was something that seemed to indicate that you struggled to know how to trust your senses. You mentioned going into the room and sizing up what you could discern from the room temperature from your own senses versus what was showing on the tag. Can you say a little bit more about the trusting your own senses element of being a new parent with all of this technology around? Yes. Um, I think that's a very good point. I I do remember having my wife go in and she would be like, I was just there. It's fine. Like the room feels fine. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. And I would be like, but the monitor says this. And she's like, I know, but I was there and it's fine. But at the time I'm, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just looking and trusting that, you know, it says 27 that's too hot for a baby. Like, what do we do? This is a problem. Um, Because when we when we came to visit my parents, I noticed in the bedroom, uh, my son was in the monitor said it was like 32. And I was like, Oh, my God, it's so hot in there. And I walked in and I was like, Oh, it's not hot at all. And then I realized there's something actually wrong with the monitor. The monitor itself was really hot. And so it was causing a false reading. And I was like, oh, and I felt such relief to know that the tech was wrong. Like, and it was so obvious the tech was wrong. Whereas prior to that, when it was just a little bit off, I was questioning whether or not I was wrong 
what you experienced there, to use the words of Tama Lever, who's one of the persons that I talked to for the chapter. He's a professor of internet studies. He calls that thing of the super hot monitor a failure in quantifying the baby. One of the bits of kit that I speak about in the chapter and that you spoke about the last time we talked was a sock was a, a bit of physiological monitoring, which I believe that you guys uh, didn't have, but which you were really encouraged to get by various people in your circle, in your group of friends and mums. Can you say a little bit about that? We're speaking here of the Owlet Smart Sock. Well, one friend had it because she had a baby who was on his stomach all of the time as a very, very young baby. And she was just... She was a bit beside herself with that because she didn't know what to do. Like, you know, we're all at that stage when they're a couple months old. We're terrified of SIDS because even though like the rate is extremely low and, you know, don't smoke, don't put the baby on the back, but still like the baby is on the front all the time. So I think for her, that really helped her feel better because I remember talking to her and she was saying, you know what, like, he has the sock on and I feel better. And I was like, okay, like, that's really interesting. Um, And I had some other friends who, who hadn't used it themselves, but they were, oh, we will get it for you. So you, you feel better kind of thing. And I was like, I don't know that we, we need it. Like, I'm already looking at the monitor too much. Like, I feel like, I will then be looking at another monitor. And my wife was like, we are absolutely not getting this. (laughs) Like, it's not necessary. We're not getting this. And at first I, I wanted it. I was like, you know, to me, I was like, wow, they made something that will like, I think the marketing, I can't remember. I think it's different in the UK and the US. Like I think the marketing in the US was basically like, it will stop you from, having SIDS basically, which is obviously not true. Um, They couldn't technically advertise it as that, but they used a bunch of testimonials on the website to imply that it was possible to prevent SIDS. And it was also being marketed as a medical device. And I think that something changed with the Food and Drug Administration, where they said this can now not be used in this way or thought of in this way as a medical device. Uh, it's more about monitoring sleep or getting sleep data. Um, whereas in the UK, um, the marketing, I think, still feels a little bit similar to what I think it originally was in the US. Oh, for sure. Because I think even though if the advertising didn't specifically say it you know, it was doing this thing, it was implied, like, your child wears this sock, you will be alerted if something is wrong. And like, to a parent, like, that's incredibly reassuring. Like, I remember I had a friend whose daughter is much older, and she said she was just every night for a year terrified, the kid was gonna have SIDS, like, she's a teenager now, but like, she said that. And then I was like, should I be more afraid? Like, now I'm a little bit more afraid. I had no idea you suffered so much. And then you see this thing and you're like, wow, like this is the the answer. You mentioned at the beginning of our talk, a bit of kit that you said that you wish that you'd had, which was the snoo. And 
for the uninitiated, could you explain what this new is? Yeah, it's basically a cot and you you kind of strap your baby in like a straitjacket. And when the baby sort of moves or cries or starts to wake, it will, I think it plays white noise and also moves in a fashion that it makes the baby feel that it's being rocked or held. And the idea is that it puts the baby back to sleep. And for friends of ours who were really struggling with sleep, they got one soon after the baby was born. I I don't remember the baby was maybe a month or two old and it worked. It was miraculous. Like the baby slept through the night and they slept through the night and they felt amazing. And we had tried to get a snoo in London and we're going to rent one because they're quite expensive and it just didn't work out like we couldn't we couldn't figure out how to do it and by then i think our son was maybe 4 months old so he would have kind of grown out of it in 2 months so just financially it didn't make sense to to get one but yeah i mean those first 6 months like i was up every few hours and i like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't work. Like I was so, so tired. So something that said, put your baby in this, your baby will sleep. If I had known that like the first month, I think we would have bought one, but we just, we hadn't heard about it until it was a bit too late for us. But I think, you know, as a new parent, and it depends on your baby because our daughter slept like she was so easy. And when we had the second one, we were like, oh, this is easy. And then we were like, oh, no, <laughs> it is not easy. Um, but I think we were so desperate for sleep. We would have done almost anything, tried almost anything. I, I don't know how I feel about this new. I'm like a bit mixed because on the one hand, like I know it was a savior for our friends and some other people I know have had it as well and said it was amazing. Um so it's kind of like, why not? And does that, does it damage the baby to be woken up crying and you not picking them up in the crib shake? Like, you know, we don't know, I guess, the answer to that. Um, You're also absolutely right, I think, to query, well, what is the difference between the baby being mechanically automated, you know, soothed in an automated way by a machine, essentially, And what aspects are then missing compared to a parent coming in to soothe? So there's probably something around smell. There's probably something around skin to skin. There's perhaps stuff around eye contact if their hunger is part of the waking and you know how the babies, they look in your eye, all of this stuff. And then the bonding element as well, because as horrific as it is to wake from sleep, sometimes there's an element where you're sitting there with a baby in the nursery, even if it's 3 a.m. and you're knackered where that's an experience that's part of the contact between parent and child that could prove important in aggregate. So yeah, it's really, I feel like there are a lot of neurological and biological developmental things that might at the very least be happening differently if it's a machine soothing versus a, a fellow human being soothing. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, on the flip side of that, there are people who just let their babies cry. So like there's there's sort of like this 
divide between the sort of responsive parenting that every time my baby cries, I'm going to pick them up, soothe them myself, or the baby cries, I just leave the baby. And then I think the snoo might be somewhere in the middle of that sort of equation. And I think you write in this chapter that, you know, it is proven that being that responsive parenting, like holding the baby is proven to be beneficial. And I think that it's so, so difficult to do that. Like for every, every reason that you can imagine, like you want to sleep, you have to work, like you have to make dinner, you, you know, you have to take a shower, like you can't do it every time. And then, you know, I don't know what the answer is to that. So then the question then becomes on the positive side, the beneficial side, can technology, really smart, really responsive technology, be a kind of stopgap that helps improve the overall experience of the baby that yes, there will be all the times that the parent can and will respond in that sensitive, responsive parenting way and can be available And there may be other times where the parent struggles to do that. And in that case, is it better to be in a nursery that doesn't respond (laughs) where there is no movement, there are no haptics, there aren't all those things or one where that is happening. And I mean, I can see that the argument for why having that kind of high tech stuff in there in a smart nursery is probably a better option than not for that baby's experience. Yeah. But also at a certain point becomes a class issue. Like most people cannot afford a smart nursery. Like, so then in the future, if this is sort of standard, do those babies suffer more because they can't be in the smart nursery? And then also like, what kind of children do we raise if we don't use that as a supplement, but rather as the main thing? Because good parenting is increasingly being equated with surveillance parenting. And there's this message that if you can get hold of the tech, if you can afford the tech, why wouldn't you? Which I think was kind of the perspective of some of your friends who were encouraging you towards the owl at sock. If it will keep your baby safe, why wouldn't you? And and so then when you get into this territory where it is so expensive, does that mean that the parents who can afford it or who are willing to go into debt for it. And then here are all the poor unfortunates over on the other side forced to parent their children in this low tech kind of way. What are all the ethics and the judgments and the insecurities that are built into that is kind of like we talk about the digital divide, but this is the digital divide of infancy. I remember the day um, our three-year-old said, when I said, okay, good night. And she goes, talk on the camera. Because when she was little, we learned that her camera, we could talk on it and say, shh, 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 shh. And when she wouldn't sleep and we didn't want to have to go in there, we would just go, shh, 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 And she would then kind of be soothed by hearing our voice. But it was her saying that she wanted us to leave so she could hear us talk on the camera and I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. This is really, it made me feel very, 
I can't really describe it. It was just like the creepiness of her knowing we're watching her, but also her desire to hear our voices disembodied from ourselves. Like she wanted everyone to say goodnight. I think there was a bunch of people in the house. So she's like, make sure grandma and grandpa say goodnight, make sure mom and you know, the dog and everyone, she wants everyone to say goodnight to her through the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's what we're, we're seeing. I think that this generation, you know, generation alpha, which represents my kid, which re- represents your kids is really a surveilled generation. It's not just about sharing information because people talk about sharing and kids data and everything, but it's also about being watched in a way that's really been pushed upon us as being what good parenting and responsible parenting is about. If you're a good and responsible parent, you get the video monitor, you track, you keep tabs, you check browsing history, you get the custodio or bark or whatever it is when kids start having devices of their own. And this is, I think, largely being accepted by a lot of parents in a very whole cloth kind of way, um, which shows both the power of advertising and the raw power of harnessing parental fears about their children's safety and well-being. Um, and it's amazing what people will pay and what people will do and what people in, will invest in when those things are, when those particular strings are, you know, played. I was going to say, I think it's all sort of based on fear, right? We're afraid our child will get kidnapped on their way to school because, you know, in the 80s, a couple of kids got kidnapped and we all knew about it. And so now it's like, well, I need to know where my kid is at all times. Whereas when I grew up, my mom never knew where I was. It was like, you left the house and you came back at some point and that was it. And they did not have monitors and like, we all turned out all right. Literally generations upon generations of children have grown up without any of all of this stuff that's being presented increasingly as essential. The higher tech, the better. And the interface of artificial intelligence uh, with the new baby valence tech that's coming out. Stephanie and I had a lot more to talk about, including a really fascinating discussion of whether tech is actually responding to or solving for a problem that is relatively new in Western civilization, modern civilization, which is that of single parents or two parents trying to survive looking after young children in a very different social and community structure than has been the case at earlier points in history or other places in the world. Is technology solving this perennially, these days, insoluble problem? To hear more from me and Stephanie, you would need to be a paid subscriber. Uh, There's the whole interview behind the paywall. For you here now, I'd like to now flip over to get the perspective of Dr. Victoria Nash, director of the Oxford Internet Institute. One of the things we were looking at doing was just doing a really great sort of qualitative analysis of all the ad- all the advertising strategies of the companies making products in this area. Because if you think about where, one of the questions I suppose I'm interested in is where do, where do pressures come from? Why should parents feel um, that, you know, after sort of obviously millennia or generations of, of monitoring children while they slept by touching a forehead or listening to breathing, that now they suddenly need, you know, a smart sock or a mattress or, or some other sort of device. Um, 
And yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that's quite interesting is what this is, this is the sort of claims that these companies make, which is very much presenting a narrative about being a better parent um, or, or, a, or a calmer parent or, a, a, you know, a more relaxed parent or a parent who sleeps. So, you know, picking up on all these other sort of threads that, that really care, that the parents really care about, particularly these very, you know, quite stressful moments, you know, having young children being sleep deprived and so on. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so there is this sort of interesting question which we can't really answer, which is why, you know, why is this narrative emerged? And is it only coming from the companies themselves and the, the sort of commercial strategies that they're pursuing? I, I think there's probably something slightly deeper to it, which I think is our increasing trust generally of digital technologies. Um, you know, if you use these things in every other area of your life to provide you with quantifying information, whether it's about your, you know, your running or your diet or your, um, uh, you know, your screen time, why wouldn't you expand that also to childhood? So, so yes, I wouldn't blame it just on the companies. I think it is, it is, it is part of just a sort of general encroachment of a sort of quantification in our lives. Mm. But I think, I suppose one of the things I find most interesting about this movement, though, is that it, you know, it is still very much an open question as to what benefits it genuinely brings. And I think, you know, you heard me questioning that a bit in the lecture. And with probably the most concerning for me, I suppose, is, is simply about what, what new risks it creates um, for, 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 for families, not just for children. You know, I mean, obviously, there's the sort of the data side, which I think is definitely worth pursuing because it is really unclear what happens to a lot of the data that these devices generate, particularly things like baby, you know, baby tech. The ones that sort of try and appear more medicalized, um, you know, some of those, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, almost. I think Owlet was one of the ones that said it was kind of cooperating with scientific research, for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we need to be really clear about where that data is going and what you know what consent's been given for that. So that's one sort of level of you know risk and harm. But I think there's also some really interesting qualitative work being done. So actually, an ex-neighbour of mine, bizarrely, Nikki Newhouse, um, did some work. I think it was with King's College London. She was doing her DPhil there. And they did a really nice, very small-scale study of how mums, new parents, used owlet socks on their, on, their, on their newborns and how it affected their parenting. And it was, it was just fascinating. I mean, it, it sort of exposed all the things that you would expect, which is, on the one hand, you know, people liked the sort of the potential certainty it gave them, the extra reassurance, the sort of the, the objectivity of a, you know, sort of a data monitor. But you know, many of them also reported high levels of anxiety because you have to worry about, you know, is the Wi-Fi working, for example, is the device working now as well? And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, to me, I mean, it was a very small study, it's published, I can send you the link, but it just sort of, you know, shed this insight onto the fact that actually, although these devices market themselves as providing you know reassurance for parents actually in some ways they might even just you know, generate new forms of of anxiety and stress well that's so interesting to me more broadly as a not as a psychologist but as a practicing psychotherapist because mm -hmm. especially amongst the um uh, the, the kind of the approach that I practice most often is acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the, pil the two pillars that that rests on are the sort of problems of control and, you know, problems of avoidance strategies mm -hmm. and avoidance of anxiety, you know, and, and sort of tr trying to sort of like smooth out anxiety often through the mechanism of reassurance. And so one of the things I'm so often looking at with my clients, no matter what kind of problems they're bringing in is the, the kind of limits of the problems of reassurance strategies to assuage their, you know, their difficult feelings. And like looking at how they kind of feel reassurance should work and how reassurance does work in the sort of short term. But then over medium to longer terms, they become kind of dependent on the reassurance and again, keep telling themselves that the reassurance is what they need or is, or is what will work to take away their anxiety, which is what they think needs to happen, like really needs to happen, that their anxiety needs to go down, that it's not tolerable, that they can't live with it. But then they don't see the 
greater unworkability of the reassurance strategy. So reassurance is what they think they need, but what is actually ends up maintaining or fueling, Mm -hmm. you know, the anxiety. So I feel like that applies in a lot of situations and perhaps even just what is more anxiety provoking than being a brand new parent for the first time with this like fragile thing. So it's the moment that you're craving reassurance and certainty, which I think kind of comes to what you're saying about the, the, um, the interest in, in the increasing interest and trust in sort of a uh, tech as tech provides us with this data mm-hmm. or these like numbers or these quantifiables on things that we only ever had a sense of before. It, it, I almost connected to that phenomenon of like, oh, I, I can't go exercising because my watch isn't charged. And if yeah. my watch isn't charged, then I won't know what's going on and I won't have captured and it sort of won't count. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which is really common. Yeah, I mean, I think all the literature, there's, you know, there's so much great literature in that now on supposed to be a quantified self and, mm-hmm. and how it's affecting our relationship, yes, with our body um, and, and, and our, you know, our, our wants and our needs. So, yes, it's, it makes sense that this would spill over, I think, into the childcare sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other aspect that you would probably know more about than me as well, and again, you know, I think some Tam's work has touched on this and, and my work touched on this a bit, is also about the, the relationship between datification and instinct. Mm-hmm. So, I just wrote down mistrust of instinct yeah. right here in my paper. Right, there yeah. you go. Um, so, you know, in the same way that, you know, I suppose we, well, we ask pilots, don't we, to sort of land planes now and again, so that they still, they can still feel the controls. They, mm-hmm. they have the, the, the memory, uh, they, you know, that their instincts will work appropriately. And I suppose, you know, it's interesting to question a little bit about what happens when we datify every aspect of particularly very young children's lives. Do we lose that ability just to instinctively know when a child is, behaving oddly or the cry sounds strange or you know temperature feels a bit high um so again maybe that's not a loss maybe you know i suppose that's the other thing the critical data studies person would say uh well yes you should think about who's making money about this and how reliable the technology is but perhaps also that's a that 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 device does provide a more accurate insight than your faulty judgment you know you're 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 anxious you haven't slept much etc so it's you know, it's not, as, it's not, yeah, there's this relationship uncertainty there about whether or not this, this, this defying of instinct is a good thing or a bad thing. I feel like there's like, there's a really big sort of meta issue here. It, it has something to do with technological utopianism and the sort of like dream that technology can like eliminate all kind of friction or sort of all suffering or all whatever, like, you know, so, you know, we don't have to worry about our kids or we can always feel sure, have peace of mind and feel sure and safe that they're safe physically. It kind of goes hand in hand with what I was saying before that I feel it's really, really problematic. Like maybe all utopian idealistic sort of thing is problematic because it takes you away from uh, it's good to be able to confront and to be able to deal with you know these scary things or these anxious things that that feeling those things doesn't have to be a problem it doesn't have to be something to be eliminated not you know that I could get sleep and never have to worry about my baby is a is a a really appealing sort of wonderful thing but it's a kind of you know if, if that's presented as a as a necessary thing or something that's good, something that technology can help us get to, I just feel like it it renders us inflexible because then that's, those are the only conditions under yeah. which we can be okay. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's sort of like providing a crutch and then, and then what happens when the crutch is taken away. Mm. Um, the other thing, you know, while we're talking about the difficulties of, of discussing this sort of stuff that I suppose I would flag and I've never really known how to address this part of it. I'm very aware that a lot of these debates are also most relevant to relatively small groups of individuals. And, Mm -hmm. 
if you think about who these products are designed for um, and the type of families they imagine they have an imagined use in, you know, it very often is focused on, you know, nice middle class, uh, you know, very heteronormative families and living yeah. in houses, you know, in cities, etc. And I think the outlet costs like 300 quid. It's ridiculously expensive. Exactly. And so, you know, there is something to be understood here, I think, about the, the sort of technological imaginaries that, that are behind these, mm-hmm. um, which include who uses them, how those people will parent. And I often wonder, therefore, you know, does this mean these devices, they're, they're not relevant for a wider array of families? Well, clearly, if they're priced out of buying them, they're not relevant for those families. How does then I use these technologies make those families feel? Um, equally, could there be better use of these technologies for families actually who are struggling in, in, in other ways. Um, you know, so I think recognizing that these technologies are really important, this data collection is, 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 is worrying, et cetera, but also being aware of the fact that you know, they are focused often on very limited sectors of society and designed with those very limited sectors of society in mind. Um, it's, quite, it's quite an important, important sort of critical stance to, to, to have, I think. I think that's really important. And I think it's important for an additional reason, because let's say, so if you see the outlet, which again, it's like, I couldn't believe it when I saw how much that thing cost. Um, and so if the, you know, of course, a lot of the monetization that's happening is not just from the sale of this very expensive device, but it's from the data, you know, that's being collected and aggregated and sold and all those kinds of things. And so if the data from the outlet is disproportionately in a certain type of family in a certain type of socioeconomic situation in a certain state of health because they have the resources and all those kinds of stuff then you've got data that's about that segment of society then meanwhile let's say the other folks have got the snoozy hero which costs 60 sort of quid or whatever but which isn't cloud linked which is just linked to an alarm which doesn't have the additional thing of data being sold and so it's like that's really strange to me that like the, there's some there's some sort of um, difference or sort of disproportionality in in the data that's being collected. And you know another example of of so, so that's a sort of you know bigger question I suppose about sort of the data economy and and how these sort of inequalities persist within it and reproduce. Yes. I think your point about utopianism before is also important because if we only ever focus on the sort of this utopian idea of how these technologies will be used, we will completely miss the, the sort of the worst uses of them. So, you know, again, we've got students at the OI studying tech abuse. Today there's a new big women's refuge uh, tech abuse website being launched. Um, and one of the things that that, you know, sort of has clarified is actually how a lot of these devices for sort of home type surveillance, whether it's baby monitors um, or nanny cams, et cetera, or even actually smart toys, how some of those can be used, you know, to, 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 to persist domestic violence mm-hmm. and stalking. So, but again, it goes back to this. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you avoid designing only for the utopian cases or the, you know, the perfect middle-class family, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah. Because what's designed for the perfect middle-class family can then easily be leveraged in, you know, less than perfect sort of situations. Yes. So it's like, this is the thing that, that people, and again, you know, the, the, the kind of affordances of the tech, you know, like the same affordances can be deployed for good as can be deployed for evil. And it's like, the, and that's what's so bedeviling about it. For the last segment of this week's podcast, I thought it would be a good idea to hear once again from Professor Tamalever of Curtin University in Australia, 
Last week, he spoke to us about sonogram sharing. This week, he has some invaluable insights into the weird world of infant wearables, like the owlet sock already discussed in this episode. And he addresses the important question of the data that these devices collect and where all of that data might be ending up. I've done a lot of work looking at sort of infant wearables, um, which are truly fascinating. Uh, And some of the functions of those wearables are very important, but there is no good reason why the data collected by them should persist in the cloud. Like it might be that you need to store it locally for, say, a few months for profiling purposes if you're looking for a pattern around health or something. But that data doesn't need to go somewhere else. It should be something processed locally. It shouldn't be something that is shared and it shouldn't be something that is aggregatable unless a case is made to a parent for an explicit use. If you want that data to be collected with other kids' data to show something, there might be good reasons to do that. But that should be something that parents are transparently aware of, not something that happens by default. And if you wanted to go through the nine steps to opt out, you can, but we've buried it really well in our terms and conditions, if indeed the option to opt opt out exists at all. I was less aware of infant wearables. They were probably in their infancy at the time that my daughter was born. And because she had no underlying health conditions that we knew of, we didn't think about those things. I'm not even sure if we had a baby monitor. She probably yells loud enough to hear her wherever we were. But I was really fascinated by your deconstruction of a lot of the advertising and marketing that went into one particular infant wearable you talk about in one of your presentations, uh, the Owlet, which is an eye-wateringly expensive physiological monitoring device that's designed for your peace of mind. And on its website are all these testimonies from parents that really scare the life out of you about things you didn't know that you should be scared about. Talk to me a little bit about your foray into the world of infant wearables and their marketing. Yes, I mean, infant wearables are one of those fascinating cases of inventing a product and then convincing the market that it's an absolute necessity when it should be novel. Um, so one of the examples that I've, I've spent the most time thinking about was something that the outlet and the outlet does what's called pulse oximetry, which looks at the amount of oxygen in your blood, which is measured not by actually extracting blood, but by using a, a sensor um, that can sort of read that in real time. Now, this is something that hospitals use, especially after babies are first born, just to make sure you know their breathing works properly, that they're, they're actually taking enough oxygen in. Um, and so there is a purpose for this technology. It's not, you know, it's not, a ridiculous thing to have. But usually in sort of 99.9% of cases, if a child is healthy, that technology doesn't need to leave the hospital. It doesn't come into the home. Now, it is true um, that sudden infant death syndrome exists and it still isn't well explained. Um, But what has happened with the outlet is they have inferred this connection between if you know what their blood oxygen level is, it will prevent SIDS. Now, they're very, very careful in the wording on their website that they don't actually say that. What they do instead is have all of this testimony from other parents who have inferred that for themselves, who have said, oh, there was an alarm and it went off and I took my child to hospital and they said maybe they weren't getting enough oxygen and I probably saved their life and it's entirely because of this device. Now, there probably is one or two cases where that may have happened and, and it actually have you know made a, a difference to health. But the amount of cases where parents have had the crap scared out of them because that their alarm has gone off 
And actually, it's either been a false positive or it's been, I didn't quite wedge the sock on right and the, the sensor wasn't quite in the right place. But nevertheless, we had a panic and, and took them to hospital. Um, I think that's that's where you see that this, this technology may not be as safety and preventative minded as it likes to think it is, but also this idea that it should be something that every parent is doing, I think, is for me the, the big challenge here. This idea of selling peace of mind um, is dangerous, one, because it shouldn't be. Like very few of these technologies are actually uh, medical grade. Now, there are, I think you found that there are one or two examples that have, have evolved recently. Yeah, the Snoozy Hero monitor here in the UK. And the reason I became aware of it is um, I was aware of a particular blogger here in the UK who very tragically had lost her daughter to SIDS. And she had two children subsequently, but particularly the first child, the rainbow baby after the loss of her child. I remembered her having talked about monitors and she was somebody who really weighed things up and really thought about things. And she said at the time, I'm not sure what to do. I'm aware of false positives. But then she repeated this peace of mind thing. And ultimately, you know, that first child after the death of her daughter, she wore that monitor all the time. It was never, ever taken off uh, just in case the child went to sleep and something happened. And I noticed that she was advertising a giveaway of the Snoozy Hero. And having read your work, I was a little uncertain when it talked about medical certification, but it turns out that yes, in fact, in the UK, it at least had this medical certification or sign off. And it was one of the least expensive ones on the market, as opposed to some of the other wearables that don't have that certification and that cost, you know, up to four times as much. Yeah. I mean, the fact that if you look at the American website for Alert, they have a a, pl a payment plan for service personnel that splits it over six months so you can afford it tells you something about how ridiculously expensive this device actually is. Um, but I guess the, the other thing about medical grade is even if it is a medical grade technology, i.e. it does what it claims to do to the accuracy it claims, it still relies on the parent in the house putting it on right. And I think that's one of the real difficulties here is how how often, especially in those first few months of life, are parents basically non-functional zombies who are getting through the day of, okay, my child is not screaming right now, tick, I, therefore I've done everything right. Like that, that's often as much brain as you've got. The idea that you're going to know exactly how to position a, a monitor or something like that on a baby um, every time they fall asleep, which can be, let's be honest, a lot of times um, in a given day, is a, is a tricky ask. Now, I'm not saying that wouldn't be valuable for some people. Um, but what I would say is that if a hospital believes you need that technology, you go home with it. Like they will set you up in the house if they believe that there is risk. And I think there is a balance to be struck between um, not feeling, not, not making new parents believe there's more risk than there actually is. And I, and I think that's one of the, the difficulties here is that the marketing message is there's so much risk, but you can reduce risk this way. Um, and, if that was the whole thing, if we were just having this discussion about just whether this did or didn't reduce risk, that probably would mean it would be a very different sort of conversation. But the, the thing that the outlet's doing, one, is it's giving you an interface to understand your child. You are supposed to be out of the room. You are supposed to be out of earshot. And you are supposed to be holding up your phone and looking at three little you know, um, notifications. And if they're all in the green, that tells you your child is healthy and well, you've done your job. 
Now, the idea of having an interface to understand your child has some real challenges. I think it sort of changes, not necessarily in a bad way, but it certainly changes the way you understand that connection and that relationship. Uh, and if you happen to have multiple interfaces that you're using, then it will change the way that that relationship initially develops. As I say, I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing. I'm just saying it's different. Um, but the bit that I would say is most problematic is that all of the data that the outlet and many of these other devices collect then goes to the parent company and is owned by the parent company. You don't own your child's data. The biometric history that the outlet records of kids is the property of the outlet company. Now, for a little while, they, they were so arrogant as to offer to sell you back the aggregated version of that data. Um, they did roll that back eventually where they're like, I will give you for free access to your child's own data over time. Um, but even then, it's, it's like their sales pitch to the world is one, on one hand, they're saying to consumers, here's this device, this will give you peace of mind, it'll warn you if something's wrong. But what they're saying to investors is, we've got this massive data set that nobody's ever built before. This is going to be so valuable for learning all sorts of stuff, invest in us, and we'll figure out how we use this data. There is a profit. Um, you know, the, the, they are trying to make a profit out of this on both fronts. And I think that's the, the challenge when you look at these companies, that they conceive of themselves as big data companies that happen to have made a device, not the other way around. And, and I think that's, that's the challenge here is, is there would be a way to do this in a more um, in a less intrusive way that doesn't build a history of that child. You could easily see most of the functions that most of these devices do recording that data locally, using it if you need to over a couple of days to show a pattern. But beyond that, the data could go away. And I think that's one of the, the – there is almost no – um, technology company that would say, oh, we're designing the data to go away after a period of time. And I think if that was a default and then you had to explain why you weren't doing that, that would be much better design than what we currently have, which is really led by tech startups trying to extract data. Yeah, societal health warning applications of data may be yet to mature. You know, with a lot of these um, startups and pitches, the main sell is look at all this data that we have, who knows what we might be able to eventually use this data for, because there might not be immediately apparent uses of it. But you know, what might be even more fantastic once you work out or what once the big data rather works out what some of these correlations are, it's only then that you can figure out how that data might be able to be used, and then you monetize it and monetize it again and again. And of course, the children that contributed to this database may have grown up long ago by that time, but still, it might be their data in aggregate is contributing to the fortunes of the company that sold their parents the physiological monitor back then. I'm just saying you could have those sort of what feels like a science fiction scenario, but it might be that, you know, that the, the correlations um, over time show that this particular weird number at this particular time of, of, of a heart rhythm actually correlates with, you know, a 99% chance of having a heart attack before 45. And if that's the case, what happens to that data if the outlet company gets bought by, say, an insurance company? And, and while that, you know, we, we sort of always use these what-if scenarios, well, Google bought Fitbit. What do you think happened with all of that data? You know, the, the idea of the big 
fish swallowing the smaller fish. That is how most social media companies make their profit. They wait for Google or Facebook to go, you might be a competitor, we'll buy you out today. But you're not just buying the product, you're buying all of the data that that company owns. And if it is data that can be combined with an existing database that the company already has, then that's another layer of information that they're bringing in. And I think it's it's those... Um, the question of aggregating different data sets to learn more and more about individuals that I think is something that we really don't have any stringent rules around at all, but we know is happening. And I think, you know, the, the fact that, say, Fitbit data has been in, used in court cases to say, oh, your heart rate wasn't doing this. You couldn't possibly have been experiencing a break-in. You must have, this must have been, you know, um, something that was set up or, or whatever. That, that, those sort of things already happen in court. So what does the data tell you is something that, will have many other answers over the potential lifetime of that child. If on average they're going to live to, say, 86, then that's an awful lot of years for somebody playing with that data to try and learn something else from it. Absolutely. And as you said, health insurance companies, particularly in those contexts where health insurance is really powerful in countries like the U.S., where the same health care isn't guaranteed to every citizen of that country, you know, it seems like a really obvious market health insurance companies for these kind of data, especially when you're building up this physiological profile of a kid over time. And, uh, you know, they distribute ones that aren't wired up to the cloud, thankfully. But I remember these, they distributed cheap step counters at my daughter's school. And my daughter's always been desperate. Can I have an Apple Watch as well so I can track everything and see how high my heart rate goes during exercise or whatever? And she's interested in those kinds of things that we do sort of fetishize our data, especially when it's data about something that we haven't had data about before, some kind of process in our bodies that's previously been obscured and visible to us, but it's interesting to us in our sort of narcissistic way, like, ooh, look at look at the, what this is doing, you know, and we might be sold information that if we're able to track this, we're able to catch a heart arrhythmia or something like that, and then we'll be safer, we'll be better off. But there's also just the coolness factor of this new candy colored graph, every app that I see that tracks some kind of physical physiological information. I mean, it's hugely visually appealing. It presents the data in all sorts of different ways and compares things and you start triangulating it with other kinds of information like, oh, that's interesting. If I compare my alcohol intake with my sleep, look at the conclusions I can draw. And I'm thinking, well, you know, these conclusions that I can draw are nothing compared to the conclusion that somebody else somewhere else is drawing. And if a, a health insurance company has access to that information and thinks, oh, at this particular point in time, according to the correlation information that we have about who's people whose data looks like this, maybe 2032 is a good point to cancel her health insurance policy or not renew it. Because according to our calculations, she might be cruising for this kind of health thing that we don't want to cover. And that sounds really dastardly, but you know. It, it all, the, the real challenge sometimes talking about this area is it sounds science fiction-y. Like if people have watched Black Mirror and gone, this is fiction, then turning around and saying, actually, a good 60% of what's on Black Mirror is actually doable now. It's just usually the the last step that the, the shows take is, you know, you can't embed a chip in your eyeball now that'll record your life history. But you've got an awful lot of your life history being recorded by the fact that you carry a phone with you 24-7. Mm-hmm. So the space between the fiction and the fact or the fiction and, and what's, you know, realistically doable isn't as far as 
as the most futuristic and dystopian shows suggest. But for that reason, it's really hard to have conversations where you're like, aren't you just telling me about Black Mirror? It's like, no, no, I'll tell you about why Black Mirror could be three days from now. What people aren't realizing with the stuff that we're talking about is just how close it is, how shortly over the horizon things actually are. What you were saying about infant wearables, relying on the interface, when you're relying on that interface more, it's giving you all that peace of mind and reassurance. There's the question of what are you relying on less? What are you not developing? What are you not trusting? And I suppose that word trust is a really salient one here because we're in this climate where surveillance is being normalized, surveillance of our own stuff, of our kids, of our kids' stuff. So it's not just being normalized, it's being lionized as increasingly equivalent to good and responsible parenting or non-surveillance is being equated to perhaps less than responsible or neglectful parenting. I'm Elaine Casket, and you have been listening to the second of the special reboot episodes of Your Life on Tech. If this episode has whetted your appetite to hear more from any of my guests, well, you can. Fuller episodes with Stephanie and Tama are behind the paywall. Annual paid subscribers to Life on Tech will receive not just a hot-off-the-presses copy of Reboot after its UK publication on the 31st of August, but also a paperback copy of my previous book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, The Digital Afterlife of Your Personal Data. Now, US readers, since the audiobook will be out in the US before the physical copy, Becoming an annual paid subscriber is your ticket to getting your hands on an early hard copy of Reboot in the United States because I will send it to you personally. If you're not yet ready for that, you can become a free subscriber and get notifications of this newsletter and podcast straight to your inbox. Or you can also subscribe using whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now. I'd so appreciate it if you'd help spread the word about Reboot. Next week, I'll be covering Chapter 3, Early Childhood, with a major focus on that portmanteau word of the digital age, Sharenting. Take care until then.